Well, good morning. morning. It's been fun being with you all for three weeks, and uh, if you didn't know it, I'll be back in two weeks. They're going to have Pastor Daniel's going to be coming the next two Sundays, and then the two Sundays after that, I'm going to come back up, fly back up from Florida. My wife and I are going to be hitting the road today, heading back to Florida. We We left our home on July 8th, and we have been all over the U.S. preaching and I think I've done the math. When we're all done driving, it'll be 6,000 miles of driving on this uh, little just shy of two-month trip. But I'm looking forward to coming back up. Uh, It's going to be just me. Becky won't come with me when I come back in the next two weeks. But let me just say this. I hope I come back and get to celebrate with you what God is doing. I pray for a great week next few weeks as uh, God reveals his plan for Calvary. I also wanted to let you know that I have available in the back books. They're free. Just go ahead and grab them. They're on the back table. And if you take them all and, uh, and we run out, I'll bring more next time I come. Uh, it's a simple little book that I've written called Principles of a God-Centered Church. We're going to be covering in the message today one of the principles in the book, actually a couple of the principles in the book. And I just want you to have this available to you. So as you leave, go ahead and grab them. They're there in the back. No charge. We, I never want to charge anybody to hear God's word. And so take it, enjoy it. Uh, Also, I want to just say something real quick to kind of maybe clarify a few things that some of you might have been noticing. My style of preaching is different. It's different from Sean, it's different from other preachers, but also it's different for a reason. Let me explain. When I was a pastor of a church and did that for years, I would teach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and break it down exegetically going through the scriptures. And I actually still do that back in Florida. When I'm back home, I have been teaching a Bible study now for 15, 20 years. I've lost track of how many years. I go through books of the Bible verse by verse. By the way, those are all available on my website if you want to go to my website and check those out. I'm actually in the book of Matthew right now. And when I get back, we'll kick our Bible study back in for the weeks that I'll be in before I take off again. And we've actually been in the book of Matthew for two years and we're in Matthew 22. So I know how to teach through books of the Bible, and I hope your next pastor does that with you as well, because that's necessary. But at the same time, there's a value in what I do as well. As I come into places for a brief period of time, these preaching three weeks is longer than I'm at most churches. Usually I'm in for one week, for I preach like Sunday through Wednesday, and then head on to the next place. What my role is, is to come in and to encourage you and challenge you. It would be hard in a brief period of time to take a book of the Bible and take you through it. But the messages that God brings, that uses through me when I go to churches are to come alongside and to where they are, and he shows me some things that he wants me to talk to him about. And how he has me do it is he's going to have me use this verse and that verse and this verse and that verse to all point out what it is he wants you to hear. And as you can see on the screen, what we're going to talk about today is God already has the plan, use his. Now, I love how Hoover put the slide together because I didn't tell them what passage we were going to be starting with, because at the time I did not know. Uh, They just put various scriptures. I think that's good. You could just, next time I come, just put the Bible, okay? So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. But here's what I want you to do as you're turning there, and I'm begging you to help me with this. I'm going to read to you verses 7 and 8. You cannot read verse 9. We're going to read verses 7 and 8. Do not read verse 9. I know that whenever you tell someone not to do something, now you're going to go read verse 9 first. Don't do it. Fight your flesh. Listen to Luke chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Then, sorry, Luke chapter 22, verse 7 and 8. I almost told you to go to the verse I told not to go to. Then came the day of unleavened bread, 
on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Stop. Don't read verse 9. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we begin from this section of Scripture, there's something you want us to see, and it's something that not just this church, but many churches, especially in America, need to hear. And Lord, as much as what you want me to preach this morning is something, a topic that I've covered for years around this country and is in my book, Lord, I also know that how you've spoken to me as I've prepared for this morning is that you want me to preach it today in a way I've never preached it. And I'm excited about that. I really am. And so I ask, Father, now that the reason why you have me present the message in this way would be accomplished because your word, as you're going to show us today, will go forth and accomplish every purpose for which you have for it. And you're going to talk to us today about the fact that all through history, all through the scriptures, all through time, you have the plan. This is your world. You have the plan. You have the order. You have the, the seasons and the times that you do things and why. And Lord, you want us to follow along with you. But as we're going to see today, Lord, the church unfortunately has taken some of your scriptures here and there and said, okay, we think we got God figured out. And we've designed church to be the way we think it should be. And we think we're doing your work. We think you're, we're serving you. But as hopefully your spirit is able and your word is able to show us, unfortunately, Lord, we have we've gotten away from following you. And I pray, Father, that you would bring us back today, that you would remind us and encourage us with your correction and your rebuke this morning and prepare us for what it is that you want to do and the plan that you have for each of our individual lives and for the life of this church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, you still can't read verse 9. It says, on the day that the time came for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed, Jesus turned to Peter and John, and he says, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now, put yourself in Peter and John's shoes. Jesus has just turned to you and said, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. What would you do? We would go, wouldn't you? I mean, Jesus says, go make preparations. You'd start thinking, okay, how many people are going to be a part of this Passover? Uh, we need a room big enough. We're probably going to need a caterer. How many people are going to... And we would go through, and we would, we'd do our best to go do it, right? But as I want you to see from verse 9, Peter and John have been with Jesus now for three years, and they've learned that when Jesus says go, it's a test. I'm going to show you this from the Scriptures, that when God says go, it's a test because He wants to find out if you're willing to find out the rest of the story. For example, Jesus, doesn't He say in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I'm with you always. And so you would think that we're to go. Well, Paul tried that, didn't he? Paul wanted to go to the Jews. He tried to go to the Jews, and what did Jesus say? Yeah, I said go, but I didn't want you to go wherever you want to go. I want you to go where I want you to go. And I've chosen you to go to the Gentiles. I got Peter in mind to go to the Jews. I'm going to use you with the Gentiles. We see in Acts chapter 16, Paul tries to go into Asia, but the Spirit won't let him. So he doesn't just sit home and say, well, I'll just wait until I hear a word from the Lord. No, God said go, but as he tries to go, he's listening for what God has in mind 
And he tries to go into Mysia, but the Spirit won't let him go into Mysia. And later on, he has the dream of the man of Macedonia, and he says, come and preach the gospel to us. And then he knew that that's where God wanted him to go. And as they go there, they look for where God's at work, and they find a place of prayer. Some women down by the river. And the first convert in Macedonia, the first convert that we have recorded in the Scriptures in Europe is a woman named Lydia. Oh, by the way, she had influence and she had money because the Bible says she was a seller of purple. By the way, purple was a very expensive cloth. And if she's a seller of purple, she's got money and influence. And the Bible says she was from the city of Thyatira. But anybody want to take a wild guess where Thyatira is? It's in Asia. Paul tried to go into Asia. And God says, I'm going to get you into Asia. Well, I'm going to get the gospel into Asia. But I'm going to do it the way that I have in mind. I've already got the plan, Paul. And you just walk with me. Let me lead you. I've been talking with Jason about God's plan for his life. And I love working with pastors and elders when I come to churches and stuff. Because I want to come alongside of people that are feeling called to ministry. And I want to encourage them. And I always tell them the same thing. If you walk with Jesus every single day of your life, you'll end up exactly where you're supposed to be, exactly when you're supposed to be there. But we, unfortunately, have been taught to go work for Jesus, go on mission for Christ, go serve God. And unfortunately, we've made the mistake that Peter and John did not make. Look at verse 9. Jesus has just said, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And look at verse 9. They said to him, where would you have us prepare it? Keep reading. He said to them, behold, when you have entered a city, the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Folks, let me say something to you. Individually and as a church, we have missed out on so much that God wants to accomplish through us because we have tried to go out when he says go and we don't listen for the rest of the plan. Peter and John say, um, we know you better than to just go. Where would you have us prepare it? I almost pictured Jesus winking at them and smiling and saying, good for you. You pass the test. And then he lays it out. Look how specifically he lays it out. You're going to go into the city of Jerusalem. You're going to see a man. He's going to meet you. He's going to be carrying a jar of water. That's how you'll recognize him because not many men carry jars of water. And you're going to recognize that's the guy. And he's going to lead you to a house. And you're going to go to the master of the house. And here's specifically what you say to the master of the house. And he's going to lead you to an upper room. And you're going to find it all furnished. By the way, you can double check me on this. I challenge you to show me anywhere in Scripture where God ever said to us, how do you think we ought to do it? All through Scripture, by the way, you'll see that whenever God had something He wanted people to do, He had the plan. Hey, Joshua, I'm going to use you to go defeat the city of Jericho. Don't run off. Here are the specific instructions as to what you're to do for six days and what you're to do on the seventh day. All the way through Scripture, you'll see it every time. God already had the plan. By the way, there is one place in Scripture where I can show you where God says, how do you think we ought to do it? Go to John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6 and look at verses 1 through 6. 
This is in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. John's gospel's account of it. It says, after this, John chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus turns to Philip and says, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Look at the next verse. He said this to test him, for he himself already knew what he was going to do. Was Jesus turning to Peter and saying, Hey, how are we going to feed these people because he didn't have any idea? Did he need Peter's advice? So not Peter. Turned to, to, to Philip. Did he need Philip's advice? No, he didn't need Philip's advice. He already had in mind what he was going to do. He was testing Philip. Folks, what I want to do this morning is I want to show you three reasons why it's dangerous for us to come up with our own plan. God already has a plan for your life, and he already has a plan for the church here at Calvary. You know, we all know Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. God has a plan for you individually, and he has a plan for this church. The question is, are we going to let him show us what that is, or are we going to just try to continue to do what we think his plan is without checking? We'll give you three reasons from Scripture why it's dangerous for us to go with what we think is his plan instead of his plan. The first one is this. He doesn't do things like we do things. When we think we have a plan, and this must be God's plan, chances are, if it's something that you've come up with, it's not how God would do it. Go to Isaiah 55. Go to Isaiah chapter 55. Look at verses 8 and 9, and we're going to go actually all the way to verse 11. Isaiah 55. Look at verses 8 and following. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you realize when God sends his word out, sometimes his purpose is that the people, and because he knows how they're going to respond, is that they would respond in repentance, and other times he knows that they're going to reject it, and his purpose for still sending it out is to give them a witness on that day of judgment. God says, I'm going to accomplish my purpose. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Folks, let me just say something to you about our big God. He's not sitting around worrying about COVID. He's not sitting around worrying about attendance numbers in the church in America. He's not sitting around worried about the fact that people aren't getting up and doing enough. We're not working hard enough. He's not fretted by any of that stuff. When I came to realize that God doesn't need me, but he wants to use me. You can double check me about that God doesn't need me stuff. In Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, Paul says this to the Areopagus on Mars Hill. He says, God does not live in temples built by human hands. By the way, this isn't God's house. 
your body is the temple of the Lord. This is a place that we've been blessed to be able to gather together and to worship and to encourage each other and to study the word, but this isn't the house of God. When we start making the building more sacred than it should be, we get in trouble because sometimes God moves us or changes buildings. He says, God doesn't live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Folks, you've got to stop thinking. If you don't do it, it won't happen. How many times have you served on a committee because you thought, well, if I don't do it, no one will, so someone's got to do it. That's a small view of God. And you might actually be in the way of someone that he's chosen to be on there when you know you weren't supposed to be. How many of us have heard, if you don't tell them, they may never hear. Your God's bigger than that. His word has gone out into all the earth. His gospel's been preached in all creation according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. His word will accomplish everything he sent out for it. And how he does things is in how we do things. And so don't think you've got God figured out. Go to Proverbs chapter 16. Look at verse 25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is what? Death. I've been married long enough to know most of the time when I thought I'm right, I'm wrong. Let me say this to you, folks. God's word clearly says that if we seek him, he will give direction, he'll give wisdom, he'll give guidance. The whole purpose of the Holy Spirit coming to seal us and dwell us, well, actually, one of the many purposes of the Holy Spirit coming to us, seal us and dwell us is to teach us and to guide us and to remind us of what he said and to show us what is to come. John chapter 14, John chapter 16, Jesus lays that all out. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to come in and dwell you and he's going to remind you of everything that I said. He'll show you what is yet to come. He even says in John chapter 16, verse 12, I have more to share with you more than you can now bear but when the spirit of truth comes he'll guide you into all the truth god's relationship with us is that we would have a following relationship on a daily basis but what's happened is is we've gotten a little bit of understanding we've had our eyes opened a little bit we've been saved but now we say oh we know who god is we know how god works and we come up with our own strategies our own plans and we go out and try to work for god God actually says in Matthew chapter 7 that on the day of judgment there's going to be many who say, wait a minute, didn't I preach in your name and didn't in your name I cast out demons? And he's going to say, I never knew you. It's possible to work for God and not know God. Let me show you something very interesting. Go to Jeremiah chapter 10. This is why you better be praying that your pastors, your elders, are men of prayer, not people with strategies and programs. Look at Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 21. For the shepherds are stupid. I love the English Standard Version translation. Some of you say senseless, some of your translations say brutish. I love stupid, it works. For the shepherds are stupid. And do not inquire of the Lord, therefore they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. Look over at verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. 
God doesn't need you to go work for him. He doesn't need you to come up with a strategy. He's waiting for you to say, all right, Lord, what is your plan for my life? What is your plan for this church? And show us, and may we walk in obedience to it. Go to Isaiah chapter 50. Look at verses 10 and 11. I really want you to see this one. There's a, there's a dire warning here for individuals and for churches. In Isaiah chapter 50, look at verses 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness, who has no light. In other words, you don't know what to do. It's dark. You don't have a, a whole lot of clear understanding. When the man walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But behold, all of you who kindle your own fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, go ahead. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you'll have from my hand. You'll lie down in torment. Did you catch that? When you're in the dark and you don't know what to do, and by the way, that's all of us many times through our lives. God intentionally walks us through times where we don't know what to do. Actually, all the time we don't know what to do. But there are times that we realize we don't know what to do. God intentionally puts us in those situations. You remember when I was here two years ago, or maybe you don't, God had me preach from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where God said, I led you, nation of Israel, all those years in the wilderness. I'm the one that puts you there. I did it to humble you, to show your dependence on me, to test you, to see whether or not you would obey my commandments, and to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by what? Every word that, listen, proceeds, continually comes from the mouth of the Lord. Too many of us have said, well, God's already given us his word. His word has already preceded, and we're just to take the Bible and try to read it and understand it and do what it says. Listen to me. I'm going to say something that sounds like heresy. It's not, but it's truth. If you try to live by the Bible without the Holy Spirit's guidance, you will mess yourself up. I'm going to show you why. Because, one, God doesn't do things the way we would do things. And two, we tend to get stuck in certain ways of doing things. Be honest. My wife will tell you, whenever I've eaten at a restaurant once, if I found something I like, you don't even have to look at the menu ever again. There could be a hundred other things on the menu. My wife will roll her eyes and go, I'll order for you. But I know at this place the burger's good, but there's other things on the menu. Yeah, but I know the burger's good, so I'm just going to stick with the burger. Here, I'm going to get the chicken. Here, I'm going to get the salad. Anybody else like that? Anybody else like that? We all have a tendency to gravitate towards certain ways of doing things, and we get stuck in methods. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that God rarely, if ever, duplicates a method and rarely ever does something the same way twice. God says, you're in the dark? Check with me. You want to come up with your own flashlight? Go ahead. I'll let you do that. And you'll suffer because of it. Go to me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, a lot of you might not know where 2 Samuel is. That's okay. Go to 1 Samuel. Trying to help. 2 Samuel 
chapter 5. Look at verses 17 through 25. Look closely. This is where God began as a young preacher in Chicago to open my eyes to the fact that he never did anything the same way twice. In my book, the first principle is God may not duplicate a method. Now, everything in me wants to say God will not duplicate a method because I'm yet to see him anywhere in Scripture ever do things the exact same way twice. But God's God, and if he wants to duplicate a method, he can, so I'm not going to say he won't. But I'm going to challenge you to show me anywhere in Scripture where God ever did the same thing the exact same way twice. You'd be hard-pressed. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, I was studying one day, and look at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Keep that in mind, the valley of Rephaim, and David does an awesome thing. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? Now, before I read any further, most of us today would come alongside of David and say, David, you're a warrior. You'll never lose a battle in your life. God's made you good at shedding blood. Well, that's what you're called to do. Why would you waste your time asking God? Come on, that's what you're called to do. But David was wise enough to know that even though God had gifted him in war and God had gifted him in fighting, that didn't mean he was supposed to fight every single battle. So David inquires of the Lord, do you want me to go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I'll certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Look at the next verse. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David does a non... Uh, well, let's just say he doesn't do something like we would. He doesn't assume that how God did it last time is how God's going to do it this time. And David inquired of the Lord again. And this time God said, don't go straight up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Folks, that jumped off the page at me one day. Here, David was in the exact same situation, the exact same valley, the exact same people, and the method God chose the first time was not the method he chose the second time. The first time he says, go straight up, I'll give you the victory. And they did, and they wiped them all out. But the Philistines, stupidly, gather again in the valley of Rephaim to go fight against David. And David assumes nothing. And he inquires of the Lord. Remember, the leaders that don't inquire of the Lord are what? You know the word, stupid. We read it this morning. They're stupid. And God says, I know it was successful that way the last time, but I want you to do it a different way this time, and it'll be just as successful. Actually, I started to realize all through Scripture, I couldn't find where God ever duplicated a method. Do you ever notice that the instructions for crossing the Red Sea were different from the instructions for crossing the Jordan River? By the way, when they got to the first city there in the, in the promised land, the city of Jericho, we already touched on it. The, the instructions were very, very specific. They were to walk around the city six times, and then on the seventh day, seven times. By the way, let me ask you a question. Was that a successful military campaign? But that, was a, that was an easy one. Yes. Name another city he ever had them walk around. 
You know, in the wilderness, when they were thirsty, God told Moses, strike the rock, and water flowed. A little bit later, they're thirsty again, and this time God says to Moses, speak to the rock. Now Moses, stupidly, strikes the rock. No water comes, but God in his mercy provides water when he strikes it a second time, but what does God tell Moses? You blew it. You stole my glory. You didn't walk in obedience to me. You followed the previous method. And I told you to use a different method. Folks, listen to me. I'm going to say something very harsh to you, but I need to say it in love. The church today is in trouble with God because the church today is holding on to older methods. We're fighting with each other over worship music. We're fighting with each other over preaching styles. We're fighting with each other over how to dress. We're fighting with each other over our preferenced methods. And I'll preach this in churches around the country, and I'll say, God doesn't duplicate his methods. His word will never change. His truth will never change. His principles will never change. But his methods continually change. And they'll say, amen. And I'll say, okay, then why are you still doing it the same way you've been doing it for 50 years? Folks, you, you can sit here and agree with me or disagree with me, but if you're agreeing with me, I can show you whether or not you really are ready to move forward with whatever God has in mind. What if he decided to get rid of the pews? Yeah, see, you've gone from preaching to meddling now, haven't you, Jim? It's one thing to think about it theoretically. It's another thing when he starts. It's like when the, this preacher went to this farmer, and he said to the farmer, he said, Farmer, he said, if you had 100 pigs... Would you give 50 to the church? He said, preacher, you know my heart for the church. I'd give the church 50 pigs if I had 100. The preacher said, if you had um, 50 pigs, would you give the church 25 of them? He said, preacher, you know I love the church, and if I had 50 pigs, I'd give the church 25. The preacher said, if you had two pigs, would you give the church one? He said, now, come on, preacher, you know I have two pigs. You know this principle of how God doesn't duplicate a method? Carries over into the New Testament. The Bible actually says that it, we have recorded at least three different people that were healed of blindness. And Jesus is God. He could just say the word and they'd be healed. But in each instance, he uses a different method. In one instance, he touches the man and he can see. In another instance, he touches the man twice. The Bible says he spits on him and touches him. And, and the guy says, I see people like trees walking around. And the Bible says he touched him a second time and then he could see. And then we see in John chapter 9 another story of where Jesus spits in the ground and he makes mud and he puts the mud on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, Jesus is God. Why did he use three different methods? I'm going to get into a couple of reasons this morning. One of them is this. If Jesus spit in the ground and made mud every single time he healed someone of blindness, what would we be doing today? We'd be horking up loogies, wouldn't we? Because we would think the power is in the method, and he keeps changing the method to show you the power is not in the method, but in the one who determines the method. A wonderful old preacher, Vance Habner, made this statement years ago. He said, if those three guys that have been healed of blindness had been alive today, this is what their conversation would sound like. The first one would walk up and say, I've been healed by the Lord. The second one would say, hang on for a second. Uh, he only touched you once. He touched me twice. You want the full healing, you got to get two touches. 
And the third one says, did he make mud? Because if he didn't make mud, you didn't get the real healing. And he said, if those three people were alive today that have been healed by Jesus, they would have started three different churches. Church of the one touch, church of the two touch, and the Mudites. Because how he does it for me is how he's supposed to do it for you. Folks, are you really wanting to go forward into what God has in mind for Calvary? Or are you just hoping that he'll send a pastor so that you'll be healthy enough to keep things the way they were? I deal with churches all around the country. And my role is to go to the Christians and to challenge them and take them to the Word of God. And I'll ask them this question. And I'll teach them about what it means to really be led of the Spirit biblically. And I'll ask them, I'll say, do you want to reach people for Christ? They say, amen. Do you want to grow as a church? Amen. And then I tell them what you honestly said to me was this. We'd love to have more people in our club as long as they look like us, sing what we sing, and leave us in power. Folks, do you really want to go forward with what God has in mind for Calvary? How he does things is not how you would do things. And he doesn't duplicate his methods. For years, we preachers have been taught to take a passage of Scripture and to look at how Paul did it and then say, that's how you're to do it. Or to look at how Jesus did it and say, that's how you're to do it. But as I began to study the Scriptures and pastor churches, I started to realize I can't find anywhere where God did it the same way twice. For example, have you ever noticed that when Paul is dealing with persecution, in one instance, he's dragged outside the city, stoned, left for dead. He gets back up, walks back in the city. In another instance, he's beaten, thrown into the inner cell. And then the jailer and his family get saved. Just a few chapters later, he's about to get beaten again by Romans, and he pulls a Roman citizen card out and says, are you allowed to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? Well, why didn't he pull his Roman citizen card out a few chapters earlier? There's only one answer. Some people say, well, no, he might not have known about that law. Maybe between the beating in Acts 16 and the jailer getting saved and the beating in Acts 22, someone said, hey, Paul, there's this law. No, he knew. Read your Bibles. In Acts 16, after he had been beaten, after the jailer and his family get saved, the magistrates come and send some people and they say, hey, you're free to go. He goes, oh, no, no, no. You publicly beat us two Roman citizens without a trial. You tell them to come publicly let us out. Did he know about the law? Yes, he did. But there's only one answer. The Holy Spirit must have told him, keep your card in your pocket. Take the beating. I've got a reason, and I'm doing something. Just because you're gifted to fight doesn't mean you're supposed to fight every time. But the same guy that was stoned and left for dead who went back into the city, we read in another instance when he finds out people are trying to kill him, and they sneak him in a basket out a window and out the wall, and he goes on to another town. Which is it? You see the danger of trying to take the Scriptures and say that's how it's always be done? And we do that. My Bible says that's true, but have you checked what you just said in your interpretation with the whole of Scripture? How do you deal with Pharisees in the church? Because in Matthew chapter 15, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, don't you realize what you said offended the Pharisees? And he says, who cares? Let them go. They're blind leaders of the blind. Yet in John chapter 3, the verse that we all know so well, where Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you realize Jesus didn't say that on a mountainside with his arms open? He was in the dark one-on-one -on -one with a Pharisee named Nicodemus at night. 
Can you even imagine, Jason? I wish I could come down to the floor, but the mask requirements don't let me. There we go. Excellent. Thank you. Just imagine yourself. I'm theoretically still on the stage. You're sitting in the dark one-on-one with Jesus. Because remember, it was at night. Chances are they were this close to be able to talk. And when Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he was saying it to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Can you imagine sitting face to face with the God of the universe saying, for God so loved the world, he sent me to die for you? Now, how do you treat Pharisees? Thank you. How do you treat Pharisees then? You've got to know how to let the Spirit guide you in each situation. What we've done in our churches is we take things that the Scripture says and we make them policies. The Bible says, as often as you take the Lord's Supper and then we put it in our bylaws, how often we're to do it. It has to be every month. God says, why don't you check with me? I might have you do it more often one month and less the next month. We think we're following God but we're not. We're following our pre-described in our own minds way of doing things that we think are scriptural. We don't know what it means to pray and to say, Lord, what would you have us do this time? And folks, God has used Sean to lay a foundation for you scripturally. He's begun to teach you some of these things that I've been talking about. And God wants to move forward. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't. My prayer is that Daniel doesn't come in with his plan. My prayer is that Daniel comes in with a prayer attitude and gathers with your leaders and you and says, Lord, what do you want to do? And you all prayerfully go through the process of letting him show you, and then you obey, even if it doesn't look like what you're used to. Are you really willing to go there, or are you going to stop when he points out that you have two pigs? There's a third reason why it's dangerous for us to come up with our own plan. The first one is because how God does things isn't how we would do things. Secondly, he doesn't duplicate his methods even though we try to get stuck on methods. And the third one is this. Whenever God changed a method, the method was also being used not to show that the power is not in the method but in the one, not just that, but it's also the method he chooses is to teach you something. I'm going to give you one example and then I'm going to close with a really good one. Not that the first one's no good. But you know that reference that the one I was telling you about in, in the healing of the blind man and how Jesus touched this one guy twice? It's bothered me for years. Why did it take two tries for this man to be healed? Some people say, well, the man didn't have enough faith. Oh, don't go there. That's horrible theology. That's horrible theology. And the more I started to realize, the more I looked at the context of Scripture, I came to realize Jesus' healing of the man who was blind in phases had nothing to do with the man as much as it had to do with his disciples. You see, he's been teaching them all along. He sent them out two by two, and he tells them in Mark chapter 6, don't bring any money, don't bring any change of clothes, don't bring any food. I'm going to provide for you. They come back and report to Jesus all that they had done. They hadn't learned the lesson. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, he says to them, come away with me by yourselves to a desolate place, and let's rest a while. Of course, they're thinking hammocks. He knows there's going to be a crowd on the other side of the shore waiting on him. And when they get there, he teaches them, he has compassion, and he reteaches and he tests them again. He puts them in a situation, says, how are we going to handle this? He already had in mind what he was going to do, 
he was testing whether or not they're going to check with him or come up with their own plan. Oh, by the way, what did the disciples do? They pulled their calculators out, all the gospels, so <laughs> it ain't in the budget. And he reteaches the lesson that he had already taught him when he sent them out two by two with nothing. He has them all tell everybody to sit down in groups of 50s and 100s, and he feeds the 5,000. And how much, how much was left over? How many basketfuls were left over? Twelve. One for each knucklehead to pick up. But they still don't get it. You can double-check everything I'm saying to you. I want you to check it against the Scriptures. You go on in the book of Mark in chapter 6. The Bible says he sends them off on the lake by themselves. He goes up on the mountain to pray. They can't even get across the lake by themselves. And he walks on the water to demonstrate his power. He could have walked around the lake just like everybody else had, but he was showing off. He gets in the boat, and the Bible says they were utterly amazed because their hearts were hardened. They hadn't understood about the loaves. Mark chapter 6, verse 52, you double-check me. They hadn't understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. He was teaching. In each of the method, he keeps teaching them something. They still don't get it with the walking on the water. They go a little further. In Mark chapter 8, you'll see him feed 4,000 people now. This time, he initiates it. He says, they've been with me three days. I don't want to send them away hungry. Let's feed them before they go. And the same guys that just watched the previous miracle go, where are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to get enough bread? And he said, what do you got? And they said, seven loaves and a few fish. And this time, he takes less I'm sorry, more to start with, less people to feed, and there's less left over. He doesn't do it exactly the same. There's similarities, but it's not exactly the same. And they pick up all the baskets left over, the seven baskets left over, and they still don't get it. The Bible says right after that, they get in a boat, and they're heading off across, and they had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus understands that they're worrying about the fact that they have no bread, and he says to them, you guys still don't get it? I'm still trying to teach you. You see some things, but you don't fully see it. Why are you worried about there's no bread? Don't you remember the 5,000, how much was left over, and the 4,000? Why are you worried about bread? And then he gets to the shore, and he sees this man. Is healed of, he needs to be healed of blindness. And the Bible says he touches him once, and the guy goes, you know what, I kind of can see now, but it's blurry. I understand that. I actually have contacts, and my vision is very, very bad. For those of you who know anything about contacts, my right eye is 7, my left is 7.5. If I didn't have my contacts in, you'd look like people, look, you'd look like trees walking around. I wouldn't know, tell if you're a male or female. And Jesus touches him a second time, and he can see. The healing method that Jesus chose was to teach his disciples, you've received a touch from me. I've opened your eyes but not fully. You need to have more touches from me to see clearly. Doesn't that line up with what Paul says? Now we see through a glass dimly, but one day face to face. I want to close this morning, though, with one of the greatest method teaching opportunities that Jesus has given us. It's those two rocks. Remember the, in the wilderness, strike the rock, and the next time speak to the rock? You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and you'll see that the Scripture shows us that they all drank from the same spiritual rock, which is Jesus. It's Christ. The rock is a picture of Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. By this he meant the Holy Spirit, which those who believed in him were later to receive. Let me ask you a question. The rock represents Jesus. The, the water represents the Holy Spirit. Salvation. And then the method he chooses is to teach them something. 
In other words, in order for the Holy Spirit to be given, in order for salvation to be given, the rock, Christ, had to be struck. But he only had to be struck once. He's been crucified once for all. Does he need to go up on the cross again to cover the sins of the world? No. He's been struck once. Now, if you want to receive salvation, do you have to strike the rock? No, John, sorry, Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how will not the Holy, sorry, the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Folks, Moses, by duplicating the previous method, was blurring the picture that Christ was trying to, to paint about himself. The rock had to be struck for the water to flow. Now that the rock's been struck, you don't need to strike them anymore. Speak to the rock, and the water will flow. What is God wanting to teach you that you're going to miss out on if you hang on to how we do it here at Calvary? Again, I'm not for change for the sake of change. I'm just saying, don't be stupid. Inquire of the Lord and be listening for what he says. And when you know what he said, Walk in obedience. Jesus says to Calvary, go and make disciples, not just here, but everywhere. Don't run off. Say, Lord, where and how would you have each of us be a part of your plan that you have for this church? This morning, there might be somebody here that all of a sudden, the illustration of the rock and the water makes sense in a way that you didn't understand before. All of a sudden you realize that all you need to do is ask Jesus for this salvation and he'll give it to you. This gospel that you've been hearing preached for years about how Jesus paid for your sins. He died on the cross. He lived a sinless life. He rose from the dead and all you have to do is believe. Now it makes sense. I just have to ask you, Jesus, to give me this salvation. Thank you for the fact that you were struck already and now all I need to do is ask you and today I want to receive that. At the end of our service, the Pastor Jason's going to be here. Wayne's going to be here. He said as well and some of the elders can be down here at the front. When the service is over, if you would like to come and receive that living water, the Holy Spirit, salvation through faith alone, by asking Jesus to save you, there'll be people down here to do that with you. Would you stand this morning? Father, you've taken us on a journey all over the scriptures today. And it's been a hard time for me sometimes because I thought of 13 other things that I'd love to show, but you're saying that this is what you have for us for this day and for this time. We thank you that it's sufficient because your word will accomplish everything you desire to accomplish. And so, Father, I pray now that we would surrender to that purpose that you have. Father, that if some of us are here holding on to what we remember Calvary to be and want it to continue to be, and it might be in the way of what you're trying to accomplish through your methods, Lord, the word will continue to be preached unapologetically here. And I thank you for that the search committee and the elders as they gathered together in this process to look at who you had chosen to be the next pastor, that was the first and foremost thing, that the word would be central and preached in a certain way without apology. We thank you for that. But Lord, as you've shown us, even though your truth will never change, you change your methods sometimes. Actually, most of the time, if not all of the time. And Lord, forgive us for being like Moses and hanging on to what you did in the 50s or you did in the 70s. Father, I'm reminded of the fact that 
Even though you used the bronze snake in the wilderness years later, when it had become worshipped in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, Hezekiah had to destroy it too with the Asherah poles and the Baal altars because the Jews were worshipping the bronze snake. Father, forgive us for worshipping things you've done in the past mightily. We're reminded that Jesus, that you remembered what you had done and you referenced it in John 3 with Nicodemus. So there's nothing wrong with remembering the things you've done in the past, but when we worship them and they get in the way of what you want to do next, they need to be destroyed. Father, break us today of what we think church ought to be and make us like Peter and John that, so we can say, how would you have us do it? Father, unite us in this process. Unite us in this journey. May we not be in a hurry. May we never fight with each other over differing opinions. But may you raise up leaders like Pastor Daniel and the elders and Jason and others like Wayne to guide in the process of saying, let's seek together what God is saying. When we believe we've heard from him, then we'll move. Father, in the churches around this country that I've had the privilege of sharing this truth with and they've grasped it and they've put it into practice, I've seen you do things beyond what we could have ever dreamed. I pray that for this church. And I look forward to the day when I get to come back in a couple of weeks to see what it is that you're doing. And as we walk in obedience to what you said, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.